And I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll finish up this chapter. And I uh, do, as, as you're doing that, I do want to just say a special thank you to Lynn Moline and the countless workers uh, who worked with VBS. And um, man, just thank you. Uh, your work, your labor, your time, your energy, you may think it's a small thing. It is not a small thing. It's a great thing. And we have communicated to 43 children that came. That's almost twice of last year. We, last year we had 23, and we, I, we ended up with 43 this year. Uh, so praise the Lord, and we, we imparted on this. We planted, we planted God's word in the hearts of those kids. And so I ask you to continue to pray so with, with, for them. And, and many of them came from good homes, but there were was, there was some who need Jesus, right? There's always some who need We all need Jesus, I guess. Uh, so keep praying for that. But special thank you to Lynn for heading that up and all the workers. Thank you very much. It is a blessing and a joy to serve with you. I, they let me do the songs. I don't know why. Because uh, the songs have motions. And I know there's going to be some video that one day is going to pop up and that's going to go, oh my goodness. Sandy Nelson will have that if you need video. But, um, it was just funny because the kids did a better job than me. You know, like, okay. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for letting me serve and be a part of that. Um, we are going to look at this passage that uh, Paul is sharing with us. If you remember uh, from last week, we talked about uh, being gospel servants and gospel service. We've been discussing the gospel, what it means. And so this morning, as we look at these last four verses of chapter 11, I, I want to begin uh, looking at what Paul, and these, these verses are kind of a transition away from, from the, the contrast of him and uh, the false teachers into just uh, relishing, if you will, in his weaknesses. Uh, he kind of goes away from that and he just goes into boasting. If I'm weak, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses. Uh, he's going to have this flag over him that is Christ and him crucified. Uh, that is his desire. And so I simply looked at this and said, this is, this is gospel living. How do we live this out? We've seen the suffering and we've, we've talked about those things. And I know that's not the uh, always the exciting moments, right? Hey, Pastor, where do I sign up for suffering? Where do I get more of suffering? Uh, that's typically what we don't hear. Um, but we will, the Lord will walk us through situations of life where we will suffer. And when those moments happen, it's important for us to be rooted and grounded in the gospel. And we'll begin to see that as we look at Paul's life. He's a wonderful, powerful illustration of living out the very things that he is teaching this church. And I pray that this encourages you. And so we see in Paul's life this element of, of, of weakness. He'll boast in that. In the first verses we'll read, he'll, he'll speak to that. We'll read them here in a moment. Um, but he, he hits on this element of, of simply resting, right, his whole life in God and trusting in his power. Uh, Paul realizes it's not me. It's not going to be me. If, if the gospel is going to go forward and he's going to labor his hardest, it will be an activity of the Spirit. It will be an activity of God. And we see in Paul's life the character of God, right? The, the, the shaping of his life into the image of Christ. We see the suffering of our Savior who didn't want to just suffer for us. He suffered with us. And we see this in Paul's life and his dependency upon Jesus and upon God. And this is nothing new. And many of our brothers and sisters throughout history have grabbed hold of this and said, here is the secret of gospel living. It is weakness. I rest in my weakness and trust in the power of God. 
Hudson Taylor, founder of the China uh, Inland Mission, knew of this secret. He was asked one day of his success. I'm going to give him a wonderful compliment on his success in ministry. A friend had said, you're just doing a wonderful job. And, and he responded and said, it seems to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. And when he uh, at last found me, he said, is he weak enough? Yeah, he'll do. And he went on, this wonderful, powerful missionary, went on to say these words. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Well, this is what Paul is living in front of us in these verses. Well, before we read them, let's take a moment and pray. Lord, as we look to your word now, we ask, God, that you'd open it to us. You would instruct us and teach us. Lord, each of us have a calling on our lives from you. Each of us have good works that you set in front of us to do. And Lord, we know that through these good works, uh, you will lead us into mountaintop experiences and also through valleys of difficulty. We will experience difficulties in, in our own bodies and aging and, and the sorrows of, of sharing the gospel and not seeing those that we love come to believe. We'll have a longing, Lord, to see your gospel go forward, and yet, Father, we may not see it go as, as we would like it to. Father, we will feel these things in our hearts and our lives. We will suffer through issues and problems. We will respond to opposition, Lord. We will proclaim Christ as servants of Christ. So I pray, Lord, I pray now that as, as we see the truth, the living of the gospel in Paul's life, let it resonate in us, that we would continue to be light that shines in a dark world. So Lord, bless the reading. Bless, Lord, the, uh, the truth of this, this passage let it resonate in us. Lord, uh, Spirit, Holy Spirit, please instruct us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is looking at the last four verses. Paul is kind of uh, transitioning into chapter 12 and where he will talk more about boasting, more about his weaknesses, more about the grace of God. But these are the last four verses, beginning in verse 30. He says this, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed ever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the, the ethnarch under uh, Aretas, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. We've been talking about the gospel, living out the gospel in a culture, uh, no doubt that is nothing new under the sun. We've seen uh, the wickedness of our culture marked out in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Paul is living this not only in the context of culture. Remember, he is writing to a church that is imbibing imbibing false doctrines about Jesus, imbibing the cultural ideas, compromising the truth. Christianity, yes, is brand new to them. 
And for us, if you've grown up in a Christian home, you have the benefit of more years than what many of the Corinthians uh, were, were exposed to. But Paul is continually coming back and stressing, and even against these uh, false teachers, these attacking the church, Paul is, is asking that really pivotal question, are they servants? Are they marked out as those who are willing to suffer for Jesus? Are they marked out as those who say, he is Christ, him crucified, that is my gospel? Are they marked out by those who will say it is Christ and him alone who saves, therefore repent? Are they marked as those, or, or are they just simply marked as Israelites, or Hebrews? You know, I, I, I'm marked out as a person who's a part of a Christian family. That's my marking. I have a heritage. Well, we know that being a part of a Christian family does not save you, and I don't really care what any Presbyterian might tell you about that. You must come to believe. Your name must be written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. John 1.12 sets that clearly. You must come to believe. So the question for each of us that we need to ask ourselves is, am I a servant of Christ? Have I put my faith in Christ? Have I surrendered myself to Jesus? Am I in service for his kingdom? Am I willing to suffer? Is there a line in which uh, my suffering gets too big to where my mouth will be silent Regarding my profession of Christ, is there a moment where you say, that's, I'll suffer to this point, but that past that, no. We need to pray for the grace of God to help us. Is your loyalty in Christ? It's going to be easier in the days that come to compromise, isn't it? It's always easier to compromise. That's the easy road. And many churches even today will be compromising this. Many churches are imbibing the culture the language of Jesus as far as repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, is a message that many churches do not even want to hear. And that's Jesus saying that. So we want to be marked out as servants. We live in this culture and we see it in bar and coming into the church, uh, imbibing the churches, rather imbibing that in, and we want to be those who stand against this with love, with kindness, with patience. Uh, we have sanctified the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says, and we want to give a response for the hope that rests in us. I think it's important when Peter mentions sanctifying the Lord Jesus. I have made that decision. I have set apart the Lord Jesus. My allegiance lies with him. First step of apologetics. My allegiance is with Christ. I am a servant of the king. Paul asks that question, are you a servant? Paul, unique calling as an apostle. These sufferings that we've read through last week and the weeks previous are his sufferings. But standing for Jesus, we too will endure hardship. So we want to have this passion. And with the verses I just read, what do we understand? What do we realize? What, what begins to be shaped in our lives as we live this gospel? Committed as servants willing to suffer. What can we experience what will the Lord be shaping in us? And these are my three points this morning. Just three. You know it's going to be good. That's one for each member of the Trinity. Gospel living is saturated in the grace of God. It's saturated in the grace of God. Paul says these words, if, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. 
Paul is a servant of Jesus. Paul, writing to this church, has been dealing with these false teachers. He's been pointing them back to Christ. His suffering and all that he has listed, all that he has endured, all that he has gone through, the five times uh, the, the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews, and the three times the rods being beat from the Romans, and the list, right, the shipwrecks, the stoning, everything that he's listed is for one central thing, the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. Back in the first letter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 30 through 31, Paul has told them these words. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, he's speaking to us, Corinthians, if you believed, Christ has become righteousness and sanctification and redemption for a reason, so that... Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jeremiah 9. He'll say it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. But he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. If he is boasting here in his weaknesses, his focus is all of the grace of God who has walked him through this long litany of suffering. He has told them in the first letter, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I labored, I suffered, I endured the grace of God. Paul will hit that in verse 9 of chapter 12. It is the grace of God in me that sustains me, that will see me through. Paul has saturated this idea of, of gospel living is the grace of God. If you are following after Jesus, it is God's grace in you. Paul takes no pleasure in, in this list of litany, no pleasure in saying, I will boast of all that I've suffered. I will boast in the cross. I will boast in what Christ has done. Nobody, I, I would think you would agree with me on this, nobody would covet Paul's lifestyle, especially that list of suffering. I don't know about you. Please don't raise your hand if you go, yes, I'm into that suffering. Good on you. But I don't think anyone really would covet that. Yet Paul has walked through this, not embittered. I mean, take a fraction of this and think about people you've talked to or maybe your own life who've endured maybe a fraction of that list and your response was, where is God? See, it's only by God's grace we come to Christ, grace alone that saves. It's by his grace that we follow Christ. It's by his grace that we proclaim Christ. It's by his grace we will suffer for Christ, living the gospel saturated with the grace of God. Paul is abandoning his list, right? His list of, of comparing, hey, are, do these false teachers have anything on this? He transitions, right, to, to, to the weaknesses from his hardships to his weaknesses. And he says, this is where I rest. This is where I boast. We'll see in the next verse why does he do that? He points to Christ. This is a theme he'll carry on into chapter 12. We'll see it again in my weaknesses. In my weaknesses, I will boast. 
If I have to boast, boasting is necessary. He'll touch on these themes. But we think, I don't know about you, but I think as Americans, it sounds a little bit odd. We don't boast in weakness. Boys growing up who play baseball or sports or wreck their bikes, you know, I've heard those words, walk it off many times. Don't cry, walk it off. Put some dirt on it, you're fine. I've okay. Rub some dirt in that scratch thing. Right, we're, not, we're told not to boast in weaknesses. We boast because we're tough. We're independent. I've done this. It, it sounds like an oxymoron to boast of weaknesses. Paul rests here. And this is Paul's key to his living the gospel. He will set it, I think, succinctly in chapter 12, verse 10, but he says this, Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sounds like Hudson Taylor right there, doesn't it? See, for Paul, this, this boasting and weakness is revelation. Christ is being manifested in his body. So he will proclaim the cross. He will proclaim the grace of God. And if you think about it, here you see the, the revelation of God's divine power. It's bestowed to Paul, to us, through Christ. And we live in living the gospel we trust that, that it is and what the Lord walks us through. And as we do this, we reveal something about God. We reveal right, God's character. We're shaped into the image of Jesus. And for Paul, with the list he's gone through, he in essence is saying, it is God's grace and me. He's taught me how to suffer. He's taught me how to be weak, how to be broken. He's taught me how to come to, to Calvary and cast my, my cares down and then pick up that cross and suffer for that Savior who has redeemed him. The Lord will walk us through things. Is, is His grace teaching you? Is His grace shaping you? Because from that suffering, Paul has learned to sympathize with the lost. We see the purpose of Christ's coming. Christ didn't just simply suffer for us. He suffered with us. Paul is living this out. We've heard him say, I have become like those. I have become like the Jew. I've become like those under the law. I've, I've come, uh, become like those who are suffering or are weak so that I might win the weak. What, what is he talking about? The Lord has shaped the grace and the activity in his life that he's come, right, to understand suffering and to sympathize with those who are lost. And yet, through all of it, Paul is not bitter. He's not hard. He didn't cast down his... his uh, desires and say, well, that's it. I'm going to pursue something else. He doesn't lose heart when the imminent apostles come into the church. We see ever more so why he has such driving passion. 
is Christ alone saves. Right? Christ alone saves. So this morning, brothers and sisters, if, if the Lord is calling you into difficult times, if you're experiencing difficult times, if you're suffering for his name's sake, realize that it is his grace that is at work. His grace will lead you through. And he will shape in you the image of Jesus. And on the other side, you will be one who is better equipped, better prepared to suffer and to walk with those who might be experiencing the same thing. Gospel living is not simply that we, that we have everything fixed. We pray to prayer and everything is, is hunky-dory now. It is, it is walking and picking up this cross. It is suffering and realizing that in this suffering, I can help this friend or this person or I can speak. And now because I've in, endured this or experienced this, I am much more positioned with confidence to be one of those who will be steadfast, immovable, and abounding always. The church needs more of those. They're suffering in sympathy. The gospel life is marked this way. Grace to lead you through. I love this quote. It's from one of the commentaries. I don't remember which. It says, if you are called to suffer for Christ's sake, remember that the hand which is laid upon you to sustain you is the hand that has been itself pierced. He suffers with us. So we see this as we live this life out, as we are servants and serving the gospel. We see that gospel living is saturated with the grace of God. Next, we see in verse 31 that the gospel living reveals what I'm saying, the character of God. He says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who, uh, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. The believer, right, you and I, reveal something of the character of God by how we live and by what we say, where we go, what we do. We speak to others with our words, and we will share the reason for the hope that's in us. And what we communicate is what we think, what we think of or think about or to the completeness of God and of Christ. We know the verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But the next verse says this, For reason, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And to be saved means we must know something about Jesus. It's something about our need of a redeemer, something about our sin problem, something about the holiness of God. Here, clearly, Paul knows something about Jesus, and what he does is quite amazing. He comes to this, uh, this moment where he's listed all of his suffering, and he comes and says, here's my boasting, I'll boast of my weakness, but I'm going to point I'm going to rest my case, if you will, in the fact that God is God and, and he's God of our Lord Jesus. These are the words that come out of his mouth, his pen, as he's writing this, that he is the one. It may sound like, of course, this Paul would do this. And Paul is pointing to the one who is the redeemer and the judge. 
He has preached Christ and him crucified. The, the apostles, Peter, has said there's no other name under heaven given to us. This is it, singularity. It is Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. We also know that he will be the judge. Paul has spoken to this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of Christ. It is this Jesus that Paul points to. This validates my life. This and all my boasting, all my weakness, and all the grace activity in my life, this is who I'm pointing to. Specifically, Jesus. See, Paul is revealing to us what he thinks about Jesus. He's not only God, but he has a unique twofold eternal relationship with God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the one that he says is blessed forever. Paul makes some bold uh, proclamation about some theology of who Jesus is. He was the incarnate one who has come, who lives sinless. He is the Lord, the Savior over all. Now you might say yes and amen to that, but think of Paul's day. What would the Jews of Paul's day, what would they proclaim? What would they reveal about the character of God? Well, we would hear words like, the God of Abraham. I believe the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They identify themselves as Hebrews, right? Israelites. Descendants. They're acknowledging something about God. God's sovereign relationship, his special relationship with Israel, with the Hebrews, with Abraham, a covenant. They're revealing these things about God. They're revealing him as the creator and the God definitely of the Abrahamic covenant. But clearly they misunderstood the new covenant. They didn't understand what Jesus had accomplished. Well, they don't speak to that, do they? They understood God who stood in a special relationship with Israel. But God is not, or excuse me, Paul is not like these Jews, even though he is a Hebrew, an Israelite. He is, in fact, a Jew. He, he has none of that language. Paul does not point to the fact that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews or an Israelite or anything like that. No, what does he reveal about God? He is pointing to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus. That, in his days, radically, that would get him killed. At least there were many who were trying to kill him. Paul is revealing that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is both God and man. And as man, he was dependent upon the Father. And as God, he has a divine nature. This is what he is revealing about the character of God. He has just told us, I will boast in my weaknesses. It is the grace of God. But here is the character. Why do you go through this, Paul? Because Jesus is Lord over everything. Jesus, two natures, perfectly combined in one person, cannot be separated. This is who was and is and will ever be. Paul reveals Jesus not only is God as the creator, he is the God of the new covenant. He is the God of redemption only through Jesus, only through the Lord Jesus, and it cannot be any other way. See, when we live this life, as you're living the gospel and you've sanctified Jesus, you've set him apart, and there is someone who comes to you and says, what is it about you, the hope that you have, or, or you're just different, what is it? Are you pointing to some list of suffering or to some list of, of heritage? Are you prepared to point to Christ and Him alone? 
and not just any Christ. Let me be sure, let me be clear. I'm speaking of the Jesus uh, who was born in Bethlehem, the one who was raised in Nazareth. Uh, I'm talking about the one who was sinless. I'm talking about the only one uh, who made bold claims, who said he is the way, the truth, the life. I'm talking about Christ, that one. That's what Paul is doing. And he uses this phrase in the context of dealing with Uh, with false teachers. He's done it before in Romans 16, 17 through 18. He says this, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They are not servants of our Lord Jesus. The cults today, and no doubt everybody has an idea to some extent who Jesus is, if they've heard of him. We have children growing up in America have no idea the name of Jesus or Jesus of of Nazareth or Jesus of the Bible at all. We have much work to do. What's even more sad is we have many in the church who profess Christ as Lord will say those words. Yet they will live contrary to his word and his commands. See, this goes back to Paul's life. It goes back to what he's doing. It goes back to him living the gospel. You and I will reveal Christ to others. But the question is, which? Which Christ? The Lord who saves, the Lord Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, the one who died at Calvary and rose again? Or will we profess some other Christ who would endorse the way we want to live? How how you live your life, the words you say, reveals what you think of Jesus. Our gospel living reveals the character of of God? Are we revealing to others a God who saves, a God who changes lives? Are we revealing a God who, who when they come to us and they say, let me point you to Jesus? Are we revealing to others that we are servants of this Christ? We'll stand against the culture with love and kindness and patience, yet immovable, steadfast, and always abounding. Or Our gospel living reveals the character of God. Now think for a moment, it's no light thing for Paul to point to this. Yesterday morning our men were working through James, and by God's grace, we're in James chapter 5, right? That's good. Not done yet, we're going. But in that, James is bold to say, make no oaths or claims or or any, any other oaths whatsoever by heaven or by earth. And yet Paul is pointing here. This is not a minor thing. This is a big thing. He is pointing to to God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, to validate all my suffering, all my life, all that I am. It's because of Jesus. This is why. This is who I am. And Paul's life, his gospel living, reveals the character of God. What does God want to do? What is God willing to do? He's willing to save. 
He's willing to save. Let us reveal that Christ to others who's willing to save. So we see in Paul's life this gospel living, we see it saturated, the grace of God. He'll, he'll walk us through suffering. He'll shape us through it. And through that, we begin to see the character of God. We have sympathy with the lost. We want to see others come. We begin to look upon souls differently. And then my last point here, the gospel living, it rests in the sovereignty of God. Here Paul gives us a moment in his history. Now think of all that Paul has gone through. And this is the moment he, he, he points out as an illustration. Here's the illustration. And in this, at this time, according to Acts 9, Paul was not uh, uh, Paul yet. He was Saul. He's in Damascus and he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to the point that those in the city want to see him arrested. They want to see him arrested and they want to see him killed to the point where they are guarding the city. They want to seize the city. There is real opposition to the gospel. And Paul goes on and says, this is this moment. Think about this illustration. This moment in my life, there are those who let me down through a wall. Now, going to Acts chapter 9, verse 24, it says this, But their plot became known to Saul. They wanted to kill him. This is Saul before he's Paul. And they were also watching the gates day and night that they might put him to death. So Luke's account of what's going on is they're watching day and night. They want this guy, Saul, and we want to kill him. In order to kill him, you've got to find him. Or to find him, you got to put some guys out, right? That's how that works. So Paul, of his own might and strength and power, is, is unable to escape. He's, he's stuck. It, definitely this demonstrates, but I mean, Paul is talking about his weaknesses, his humility out of this, right? I didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't save myself. But we see in the next verse of Acts chapter 9 that there are some disciples Paul evangelizing, there's believers, there's other believers show up. And in 9, Acts 9, 25 says, But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Paul hears his story. This is the grace of God. The city is surrounded. They want me dead. And, and here are some disciples who have come to me. Think about it. This is the story. This is the moment. This is what Paul records for the, in the letter of the Corinthians, that it's no small thing. Here is the sovereign act of God. I was delivered. I will be delivered again. It's what he's saying. So for us, what do we see when we're living the gospel, we're resting in the sovereignty of God? I believe there's three things that you can begin to see and to know and to trust in your life. And the first one is this. The small things you do for Christ may have great results. That encouraged all two of us. The small things you do. I didn't say big things. The small things you do for Christ may have great results. 1 Corinthians 15.58. I've cited this verse many times. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know your toil and the Lord is not in vain. All your little things is not 
in vain. Think about this story, this moment. Clearly, Paul is understanding of the sovereignty of God. He has to understand that for this to happen, there has to be a rope maker somewhere. There has to be a rope maker who, who has enough knowledge and understanding to, to put a rope together that will hold an adult man, will lower him down on the wall so that once he gets out of, the, out of the window, he just doesn't fall. There's someone in this story who knows how to make some dependable rope. Do you think he went to work that day, put the rope together and went, this is actually going to save a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's going to go on and write some letters and we're going to see his name changed to Paul and he's going to do all these things. Do you think he's thinking that? Clearly not. It's a small thing he's doing with great results. This happens throughout history. It happens throughout church history. It happens all the time where we're not even thinking about the little things we do and they have great, big gospel impact. There was a story of an English vessel uh, that put in at the Pitcairn Island and found right, right, right in the middle of the surrounding cannibalisms and other tribes that were there, they found a Christian colony. Uh, this colony had schools and churches. They questioned, they said, where did this come from? There's been no missionaries that have ever landed there. They dig into it a little further. They find out that 60 years before, a vessel was at sea and was in a disaster. And the sailor that was aboard that ship could find nothing else to save. When he couldn't save the ship, he goes to his trunk. He takes out a Bible that he got from his mother. He puts it in his teeth and he swims to shore. And the book was read and reread until these people were evangelized. Small thing, big impact. See, in your gospel living, as we are focused on the grace God working us through and, and, and shining and showing his character, we also must realize that he is sovereignly working things in you and through you. Uh, he's an ever active God. So if you're making rope, make it stout. Second thing I think we learn from this is that much of your service for Christ will go unrecognized. We have no idea who these guys were holding this rope. We don't know the guy who tied it to the basket. We don't know the, 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 the guy who said, no, step into it like this, Saul. We don't even know the guy who came up to Saul and said, you know what, I've got an idea. There's always the idea guy. I'm just going to assume it didn't come from Saul. Like somebody walked up to him, looked him in the eye, and go, I know it's bad. I know they're surrounding the gates, but I have an idea. Who's that guy? Who are the guys that have a little bit of some, some, some burn on their hands who held that rope from, from keeping him from sliding too fast? Who are those guys? They're not recorded for us in Scripture. Now think about your own life. Are there not moments where you experience influences? Somebody stepped into your life to help you direct to a right way? Maybe you look back on it and it's a bigger moment now because at the time it just didn't make sense, but... It was an influence that directed you. Think about the sort of influences that kept you from going astray. 
Think about those who reached out to you or touched you or who are, or, you know, for whatever reason brought you back to church or brought you to church. And at the time it didn't seem like a big deal, but now you're here. Think about those who've looked you in the eye and said, I have a plan. I have an idea. So I think the point is there, there might be a long rope. We might, might be 30 years ago, right? We could say the rope is super long and it's 3,000 miles long. And yet there have been hands who have been on that rope who have been part of your life in shaping it. And you probably don't remember their names. Some of our labor for the kingdom will, is going to go unrecognized. I believe one of the great excitements I think is ahead of us when we get to heaven is to go around and to find those people. Some of us will be shocked that made it, right? That's always Jack's joke. You made it here, you know. Uh, but they'll be there. There'll be those. I believe that'll be there. That'll be marked out as just great servants of the kingdom. And we'll probably walk around and ask them. I would imagine, right, the Lord pointing them out. We'll go to them and say, why are you here? Why, what was the great thing you did for the kingdom? And I believe we'll hear answers like this. I was, maybe for one person, I was by choice the unmarried daughter that stayed at home to care for my father and mother in their old days. And we may pause and go, is that all? Is that all you did? Yes, that's all I did. We may go around and ask another, what about you? Why are you marked out as great for the kingdom? And I believe we might hear something like this. I was a mother who brought up a large family of children for God. Some of them are Christian mechanics and some are Christian merchants and some are Christian wives. And we will respond and go, is that all you did? Yes. I labored for those children. Unnoticed, unappreciated. We'll go find another. Why are you here in the kingdom of God? I led a Sunday school class. And I had them on my heart until I saw them all come to the kingdom of God. And now I'm here waiting on them. And I believe as we keep asking that question, there will be one we will ask. He will respond. In the time of bitter persecution, I owned a house in Damascus. And that balcony reached over the wall, and a minister who preached Christ to me was pursued, and I hid him from his assassins. And when I couldn't hide him anymore, I gave him this idea, let's put you in a basket. Let's lower you down. And I was one who held the rope. Great in the kingdom of God. A lot of our service will go unrecognized. But as a believer who's living the gospel, we trust and know that God is sovereign. One last thing. On this should be apparent that nothing you are called to do is unimportant. The Lord calls you to hold a rope and trust in his grace, reveal his character, and be obedient. Because you know, as someone living the gospel, this moment has eternal purposes. It was said of Augustine when he was conflicted, when he was writing his confessions, and seeing his friends come to believe, him in torment, not 
not finding that, that moment in which to trust in Christ. He threw himself out of the doors of his home, and he was out on a courtyard, and he was laying on the grass, I believe, and he heard a boy or a girl or some children in the distance singing something to the effect of, take up and read, take up and read. Augustine took that as a sovereign moment, a providential moment, to go inside, open the Bible, and read one more time. These are the words he read. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in the carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit regenerated his soul. And Augustine came to believe. Because there was some children singing a song. Maybe we get to heaven, we'll hear about that too. So here's the, the, here's the drive, brothers and sisters, as you live your life as you live the gospel, yes, we'll go through difficulties and suffering, yes, we'll have heartache, we'll see loved ones not come to believe, but we'll continue to pray, we'll continue with patience and enduring and serving and suffering. And as we do this, we will see that all of this is saturated in God's activity by his grace in our lives. That we not lose heart, but stay the course. And as we do this, as we learn to suffer and sympathize with others, we begin to reveal a character of God that our Savior also suffered, not just for us, but with us. And we can rest in the fact that all we do and all our weakness, and all our, our moments that have panned out for the kingdom, and all the moments we have no idea about, we trust and rest that our God is sovereign, that he is working in us always, shaping in us Christ, that we, like the words of Paul here, boasting in our weaknesses, like Hudson Taylor, who says all the giants all the great men and women of the faith have this one thing in common. They were weak, but they believed God was with them. I pray that we would be marked out as men and women of the gospel, living the gospel. In moments of difficulty, doubt, we would be those who trust, no, God has a plan. He is sovereign. As we go through these experiences of heartache and difficulty, we will rest and trust his grace. Lord, shape this in me. Let me reflect Christ and not the world. Let the character of God be exemplified in me. This is what Paul is living. Here in a moment, I'm going to pray, and I just want to make mention of our last song. It's a hymn, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And the refrain says this, is why it chose this. It says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It speaks to us living the gospel as resolved followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the truth of your word and your goodness and grace to us. Uh, Lord, I know my brothers and sisters here this morning, some are going through trials and tribulations. Some are experiencing difficulties. Some of us 
Lord, we're just not aware of those maybe hurting around us. Lord, we're just kind of going about life. But I, I ask, God, that you would open our eyes to your grace, to your grace activity. Lord, we would trust and reveal, Lord, as we trust you, a Christ who saves. And Father, that we would rest in your sovereignty. I pray that we would be those people realizing, knowing that when we say the words, you are ever present, means you are ever working. All our labor in the Lord is not in vain, whether we see the outcome of it or not. So Lord, if you lead us to to works that never get acknowledged, let us trust and know, Lord, they are, there is a sovereign purpose. Let us be those who will be marked out as faithful, living the gospel, desiring to be glorified in us. Father, we thank you, we love you. We pray that uh, the enemy would not take these words from us, that it's been planted in our hearts, let it grow, that your word change us, whether we be more holy and more obedient to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to uh, just remind you that if you have any questions about the sermon or other questions about the Bible, I'd love to help you. I'll be up here for you. Uh, about following Christ, questions regarding that, definitely make myself available to you. I'd love to help you. Um, and also, as you go out, there are, I, I believe we bought many of these. This is a Father's Day gift to fathers please grab it Uh, but if you came in a car I think that's kind of where we're going with this and if you have more than one car I think there's enough for that too so uh, we bought a bunch of these so grab them and and please spread them around you know we love the fact that it's faith community bible church but uh, ever more so I believe every single one of us loves the word Christ alone saves and that's what we want to be marked out and definitely as Christians be about Uh, so please grab that on the way out um and as we close, we'll bring our service to an end here. Let's, let's stand one more time and let's sing this. My faith has found a resting place.